Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, a lot of people are deciding to email. They're always welcomed to Cork Today at c103.ie. And media organisations being the main top stories in the news continue again today. Of course, we've got the Public Accounts uh, Committee with the executive uh, and non-executive board members from RTE are back in. First opportunity today for TDs and senators uh, to question the new uh, director uh, general, uh, Kevin uh, Backhurst. And um, the the focus seemingly uh, he is going to say is on the restoring trust in RTE, a future that is worthy of its talent, hardworking staff that restores the trust and confidence of the Irish public and that benefits the fundamental role of public service uh, media. And that's what we need. We need trust back in the organisation. And actually yesterday, the Oireachtas Media Committee uh, met. Now, funny enough, RTE were represented. Now, this was something that had been planned many, many weeks ago. And this, the reason that the members, different broadcasters were invited in. This was all to do with uh, GAA Go and God knows there wasn't a radio station I think in the country that at some stage this year didn't have very angry listeners contacting them about having to pay in order to watch your county team play when it went behind a paywall and, and people were really, really annoyed. And of course, what did people do? They started ringing their local public representatives who were getting it in the ear. So the Oireachtas Media Committee decided to take a look at that. They weren't to know when they planned yesterday what else was going to go on and why RTE would be before them on many, many other occasions. So yesterday, the focus, though, was very much on the head of sport at RTE, who said GAA matches for the streaming service, GAA Go, Go are absolutely not cherry picked. And there has been a view by a lot of members of the public that they cherry pick, they pick the ones that they know that they're going to get a lot of people paying the 12 euro to log on and to watch. But Declan McBennett said nothing couldn't be further from the truth. He was speaking on behalf of RT Sport. He is the head of sport at the Oireachtas Media Committee. He also said there's no conflict of interest between the GAA and RTE 
in relation to GAA Go because of course both organisations are involved with it. He told the Senators and the TDs yesterday that RTE is contractually obliged and I'm assuming this is under their public service remit so they, they're under contract to show 31 games and these will be free to air and obviously they're the games in the All-Ireland Hurling and the All-Ireland Football uh, Championships. He said he doesn't accept that the GAA and RTE are complicit in putting the games behind uh, the paywall. And then when registering for GAA Go users, and I didn't know this because I haven't registered with them, they're asked what county they support. So obviously the theory was there. Well, if you get enough people from one county and they know that they've got a lot of, of people online, will they be putting that particular match behind a paywall if they know it's likely that somebody has done it before, that they might uh, do it again? But Declan Bennett said categorically, unequivocally, that data is not used to decide which matches are uh, shown. Noting that there will be a review of GAA Go at the end of the year, he did accept that there was one problem with GAA Go and that was access. And to me, for people living in rural areas, that is a major problem. He said people with good broadband had a very good experience when they played their €12 to watch the match. But he said people with bad broadband had reported a very, very bad experience. And God knows we had enough people here in Cork County who had paid up their money and had a very bad experience because the match would keep dropping out or it would be buffering and it was really, really uh, frustrating. He said that there was a wider societal issue and he said, obviously, that's the rollout of the government's national broadband plan. So he's saying nothing here to do with RTE sport. And the Labour senator, uh, Marie uh, Sherlock, she said that the access issue for some people calls into question the very existence of GAA Go. And I, I, I watched, by the way, the, the Oireachtas uh, committee meeting yesterday. I was very impressed yet again with Marie Sherlock. And she's been good on some of her other line of questioning as well. She doesn't seem as shouty as some of the other members of the committee and she gives people time to answer the questions. But anyway, I thought that was a really good point. If everyone in the country doesn't, is not able because of poor broadband to have access, then why do we even have GAA go? Now that's, um, they were the points that were raised by the head of sport at RTE. But earlier on yesterday, the director general of uh, GAA, that's Tom Ryan. He was quizzed about the amount of money that the GAA makes out of GAA Go and he says it brings in €4 million a year in revenue. It really is a money spinner uh, for the GAA. I was surprised at how much money it uh, brings in. He said the GAA has a responsibility to earn what he says is a decent and a reasonable income. And he said, we either get that through broadcasting or, he said, we get it at the, uh, the turnstiles. Tom Ryan of the GAA then was unable to give a breakdown of the total revenue from GAA Go when asked how much money comes from viewers overseas and how much comes from viewers that are here in this country. He didn't have that kind of uh, breakdown. He was also asked about uh, how many people would be watching on GAA uh, Go. And he said at the top end, the most viewed uh, games, and I'm assuming that's when Cork goes behind a paywall. They certainly would be one of the counties that a lot of people would want to watch the match. It's between 100,000 and 120,000. So that's a lot of people. And then the least views are somewhere between 1,000 and uh, 1,500. The total audience number 
for the GAA games, G, the GAA Go games last year, they estimate to be at 1.3 uh, million. And I'm assuming they're doing that by the number of logins. And I take it for every house that logs in, do they multiply that by number by three? They're assuming most people would have three people watching it or maybe it's more. I don't really know. Uh, nobody was able to actually give that exact detail of how they come up with that uh, figure. Tom Ryan of the GAA said that the GAA approached every broadcaster and potential partner in the market over the course of the year, especially when the contract with Sky TV uh, expired, couldn't get anybody to sign up and hence they decided to put them behind paywalls. He also said 22% of GAA revenue is from uh, broadcasting and they're not expecting that to uh, change. He said the the, uh, venue... The GAA Go, the venture, it was initiated back in 2014. And if you remember back in 2014, the reason it was brought in and it was a terrific idea at the time and it was very much focused on the Irish diaspora. And I actually remember being away on holidays in the south of France, probably around 2015, 2016. And there was a Hurley match on that we wanted uh, to watch. I think it was a Munster final. And we went on to GAA Go and willingly paid up and thought this was fantastic. And we, we watched it on an iPad and and it was great it was great so we didn't have to miss the match and and I remember thinking this is fantastic for Irish people living abroad and you know so many Irish people over the years they you know they really hang on to their GAA roots and for them to be able to watch the match so I thought it was terrific thought the whole idea behind GAA Go was great but we could never have predicted that a venture that was put in place for the Irish abroad would end up being used by the Irish um, at home but of course as was as was explained uh, yesterday, all of that changed when the pandemic hit and people couldn't physically go to matches and there was no one at matches. The GAA say at that point they morphed from an international provider into the domestic market and that was why not every game uh, could be feasibly broadcast. Now our our own uh, Fianna Fáil Deputy for Cork uh, for West Cork Christopher O'Sullivan he's a member of that committee meeting uh, he said yesterday that there was heated public sentiment around GAA Go several weeks ago as there was a high profile game we know what he's talking about and he said the public simply couldn't watch it and he ended up talking about his own dad with his Nokia phone and not a hope a Nokia phone is not a smartphone wouldn't be able to download it and the um, Tom Ryan of the GAA said choices had to be made when it comes to what matches have been shown he said he doesn't think it is a reasonable that they can get to a place where every match will be shown and I think everybody accepts that he did suggest that over half of the GAA's overall broadcasting income is from GAA Go. So it doesn't look like it is going to go away. And Brendan Griffin, he's the Fine Gael Kerry based uh, TD. Obviously, he was speaking up on behalf of the good people of Kerry. And he pointed out that Kerry have had six matches this year, of which only one was shown on uh, the TV. And he was wondering, should there be county quotas? But the GAA said that they don't operate on county quotas at the moment and he's not sure that the, the Tom Ryan isn't sure that that would be uh, uh, practical uh, to do it that way. But definitely you countless times the GAA said, look, they, they're taking on board what has been said by 
the TDs and the senators who spoke yesterday and that there is going to be a review at the end of this year. I think you know the big bugbear is the 12 euro. Uh, people feel that that is, is too much to be paying just to watch uh, one match. So it's a kind of a case of watch this uh, space. But they're adamant that they do not cherry pick the matches because I think anecdotally people were saying they're picking, they're cherry picking the matches knowing the ones that they can make the most money from. But the GAA are saying that does not happen. But there is a huge difference between the most watched matches between 100,000 and 120,000 and the least watched matches are only garnering uh, to GA go between 1,000 and 1,500. I mentioned Senator Marie uh, Sherlock. She was a, she's a member of the um, PAC and uh, she was questioning yesterday and I was saying she was particularly good uh, or the media committee, sorry, uh, the Oireachtas committee and she was particularly good last week as well. Somebody says, I totally agree with you about Senator uh, Marie uh, Sherlock. I, thought, I also thought she was excellent. I think she would make a really, really good TD uh, for Labour and definitely the Labour Party needs good candidates and Marie Sherlock would be one and then the listener says is Marie Sherlock related to Sean Sherlock as she's originally from Cork she's from Carrig Navarre and um, I'm told she is Sean Sherlock's first cousin. So, yeah, the Labour uh, seems to be and politician and that route seems to be in the blood uh, for sure. Thank you for your text to 0862103103. Tom in Mallow says, I know Carami Horse Fair has been going on for hundreds of uh, years. And of course, it was on yesterday. It's on the 12th of July uh, every year unless it falls on a Sunday and then it's on the following Monday, isn't it? Um, but uh, the people that it... The people that it was set up for compared to today's attendees is very, very different, says Tom. He, throw, he drove through Butterfield at 6am this morning and the rubbish were on the streets. He said, absolutely disgraceful. Tom, all I can say is that happens every single year. And I guarantee you, if you drive through again this afternoon, the council workers will be out and that town will be absolutely spotless. It's disgraceful to think that there has to be a clean up every single year. But I remember, remember when Colin McGrath used to do the breakfast show here on c Three. He used to be travelling in that direction and every single year without fail uh, Colin would have his hand out the car window making taking video footage of the state of Butterwind when he was coming through early. So unfortunately it goes on uh, every year. I don't know what the solution to it is. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie today on C103. Now yesterday the European Parliament voted to pass the EU's flagship law to restore nature, saving the environmental measures which centre-right politicians had campaigned to kill off. The largest group in the Parliament, the European People's Party, had instructed its members to reject the law outright but five Fine Gael MPs in the group defied that instruction and to explain why the head of that delegation, Sean Kelly, uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Sean. Good morning, Patricia. Nice to be with you again. And lovely to to chat to you. Was it a difficult decision to vote against the group that you were aligned to? Well, it wasn't an easy decision because there was huge pressure on for unity at group level so that we would all vote in the same way and reject the Commission proposals. But uh, I and my colleagues, Fine Gael, said that we didn't agree with the strategy adopted by the EPP because uh, they pulled out of discussions when the rapporteurs, they called them, were trying to reach compromises. They weren't happy and they pulled out and we weren't too uh, happy with that because normally you walk through these things 
and uh, you eventually uh, reach a compromise. I've done that several times. I've been involved in files where I would go, and because EPP is the biggest group, I would get invariably almost everything I wanted. But anyway, apart from that, we felt that the nature restoration law was important, that it should be given the opportunity to go through Parliament and onto trilogues where the Council and the Commission and the Parliament would sit down and finalise the final law. So we felt that to vote at the very beginning and to reject the Commission's proposals, that would mean that if that was passed, that was the end of it. There'd be no nature restoration law, there'd be no other vote in Parliament, there'd be no trilogues, and I think that wouldn't have been good. I don't think that would reflect what the vast majority of people want. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it has been described as the EU's uh, biggest pieces of uh, green legislation, but it has been uh, divisive across the EU. Farmers are concerned, Sean. What do you say to farmers today? That's a very important point, because initially when the proposals came out, we pointed out serious flaws on them, and uh, we said we wouldn't support it unless those flaws were addressed. One of them was that it should be compulsory for farmers uh, to rewild or rewet. We felt that wasn't right. Secondly, there was no funding other than through the cap. And as I pointed out, I said the cap funding is already allocated. It's gone from production to eco-schemes and the farmers have embraced it. And uh, the Commission then uh, took that on board and they published what's called a non-paper where they outlined clarifications of what they would do. So as a result of that, the council, which is basically the member states ministers, met, and they also came to the same conclusion that the rewetting, for instance, in Ireland would take place in state land, that any farmers who want this would be facilitated, but that it would be voluntary, and that there would be funding outside of the cap, a new funding stream, would be set up uh, to ensure that they would be properly compensated. So all that has been uh, achieved. And for that reason, I think when the final uh, vote now will come, when we have the the result of the trilogues, we should have a law that works for nature and works for farmers and works for Ireland and works for the world generally. And that's what it's all about. But a lot of work now to go into this before it actually passes into law. Yes, and that's the normal situation. But they have the guidance now of what was passed in Parliament, what the Council agreed, and it was interesting that the Council position was adopted in the Dáil by, I think, 93% of the members of the Dáil voting in favour. Now, that's very rare for that to happen. So I think... uh, the members of the Dáil saw that there was an opportunity to, first of all, have the nature restoration law, but also to deal adequately with concerns that farmers and fishers and others might have had. OK, all right. And some um, will say, uh, Sean, that the, the re-wetting, uh, because I know um, Article 9 has been removed from the final uh, text, so the, the re-wetting will have to be included in some way in order to achieve the targets. I think that's uh, true, and I think that will happen, particularly where you have rewetting already actually being planned by Bordnemona and by Quilcher. But another aspect of that is also has to be included 
that if there are unintended consequences for an adjoining farmer because of rewetting in one particular area, that they too would have to be taken into consideration so that their productivity wouldn't be affected. So all those details, I think, can be worked out and have to be worked out. And you have to bring all stakeholders with you. There's no such thing as imposing this on farmers or anyone else. All stakeholders have to be brought on board. And I think that's what we wanted to include. And I think the proposals adopted by Parliament and the Council will ensure that will happen. And uh, absolutely everybody saying a great day for the environment. A lot of people saying well done uh, to Sean Kelly and the rest of the Fine Gael uh, party. Somebody else says I was really worried uh, thinking this bill would not uh, pass. Well done to all the Irish MEPs who voted in uh, favour. Now Sean just want to have you on the line wearing your former GAA president uh, hat uh, because I I was talking a couple of minutes ago about the GAA (coughs) go because of course it came up yesterday at the Oireachtas Media uh, Committee do you think it's time to re-examine the arrangements around GAA Go? I do actually and I think in fairness to the GAA when they sat down and did a deal on the media rights for our games uh, Sky didn't renew for one reason or another uh, their options were limited and they came up with this but they didn't probably realise uh, first of all the demand that would be there for games uh, and also the concentration as a result of the, particularly the new football situation and the popularity of the hurling, particularly the monster hurling. And now that people have seen the consequences of Diego, not enough games on free-to-air, and also the fact that RTE have had a 50% stake in Diego, so they really had a monopoly beyond anything that you could really imagine, so that all the TV rights, basically, apart from some games and all to go to the BBC, they, they had a half share in GA Go, which really it probably should have been called GART Go. And I think it would be very wise for the GA to say now that the RT are being reevaluated, etc. And we've had one season with all the new structures, both in hurling and football, operating together, a lot of disquiet amongst our fans. Let's relook at this and come up with a better arrangement. But they did say uh, yesterday, Tom uh, Ryan, the Director General, I mean, it brings in €4 million Euro a year in uh, revenue. And, you know, he pointed out that uh, the GAA has a responsibility to earn what he called was a decent and reasonable income. This is a money-making machine for the GAA. Yeah, but when the Diego started first, it was essentially for the diaspora, and it was fantastic because I actually used it myself a few times during COVID when I couldn't get back for matches that would play around Christmas time. I watched them in Diego. But extending it to so many games within Ireland, when all those are already paying uh, their fee, their licence fee to RTE, and now paying RTE again uh, to watch in Diego, there are a lot of things there that have arisen that may not have been thought out in the beginning. And I think that has to be looked at. And also probably spreading the rights to possibly Virgin Media or others who might be interested would be good because monopolies in any walk of life are not good. And you can say the GA makes a lot of money out of it, but the GA's primary purpose is not to make money. It's a voluntary organisation, so it's highly likely to go broke. But its main purpose is to promote our games and to give an opportunity to as many people as possible to win the games without discommoding too much 
and particularly to have young people seeing our great stars as often as they possibly can so that we'll keep the games alive because if we don't keep them alive in Ireland, there's no place else to keep them alive. Yeah, and as, uh, you know, a couple of the, particularly the rural-based uh, TDs, uh, Brendan Griffin and Kerry was pointing it out as well, uh, is the access, that not everybody has a decent broadband and certainly uh, large parts of uh, Cork, when uh, one of the big Cork matches went behind the paywall, the frustration and the amount of calls we had on the Monday because people, you know, bless their hearts, they paid the €12 Euro and then couldn't watch the match because it kept breaking down or was buffering or, you know, it very frustrating for people. So un- until the access that everyone has access to decent broadband, they really need to stop and think about it, don't they? You're absolutely correct. Uh, because they wouldn't have the access, they mightn't have the uh, knowledge. In fact, 52% of the people in Europe have little or very low digital skills. Now, I'd say in fairness, we have much higher digital skills in Ireland, but for many people, they wouldn't have had the opportunity and I think also watching it on the tablet and so forth, they mightn't even know it. And the, a lot of people have been taken by surprise by this. They've got no chance really to uh, prepare. And as a result, there's huge frustration. So our supporters are the best in the world. They have supported the GA through thick and thin. So I think we should take their views into account and look at it and see what we can do uh, to make it uh, easier for them to see the games in future. And of course, also to help promote our games so that we see the stars uh, particularly during the championship as often as possible and that we have to look at that I think yeah, don't and, yeah and you know it's it's older um, it's the older people that I really feel sorry for on this people who were let's be honest the backbone of the GAA people who went to all of the matches and you know, brought the children to the training and went to training themselves. And, you know, now they get into the later years of their life, a lot of them housebound. And for them, it's it, it's it's particularly sad that they can't see their, their county uh, match. You're absolutely right, Patricia. And I think that's a consideration that must be definitely taken into the equation when the GA looks at it. Because I can tell you, if you speak to officials in all the clubs in Cork, and the county board, they will all have taken criticism over this because the people would take it out and those who they see yeah, represent yeah. the GA. And I think, in fairness to them too, all I'm saying is when this season is over, which will be at the end of July, the GA should consult with the county boards and the clubs, ask them for feedback, and then move forward accordingly. And I think we can get in a situation that can be as fair as possible to everybody. Well, well, it seemingly was stated yesterday at the Iraq, this media committee, that a review of GAA Go is going to happen at the end of the year. And I hope they take on board your suggestion that they listen to the people on the ground. Sean, I leave it there. Thank you for that. And thanks for taking time out to talk to us. Thanks, Patricia. Uh, yeah, good, mo- good morning to you. That is uh, MEP for the South Fine Gales, uh, Sean Kelly. Somebody says, time for the players to go on strike. Hashtag GAA go. And someone else says, it is time Ireland had a dedicated sports channel where you'd have GAA matches, horse racing, League of Ireland, soccer, athletics, etc. And have a dedicated uh, sports channel. And can I just stay with GAA for the moment? Because a photograph that I actually saw at the weekend that went uh, viral and the story behind the photograph is making the Irish Times today and it's a photograph of a little enthralled young Kilkenny fan. It was at the Kilkenny Clare, the second All-Ireland 
uh, the hurling final, the semi-final that was on at the weekend. And this photograph was taken of this little boy. It's a little boy by the name of Fionn McGivran. And it was captured by uh, James Crombie, the photographer. And it went viral on social uh, media after the full-time uh, whistle. It said more than three million views on Twitter. That was up to yesterday. And the image shows this little boy. He's only two. And he is standing in a striking pose along the steps of uh, Croke Park while the fans on either side are all sitting down, all turned one way, uh, watching the action unfold. And you can see this little boy in this sort of really striking pose. Like he's held in the moment of whatever is happening on the pitch. He's enthralled by what he is watching. And it's just an incredible photograph. And he's there with his little Kilkenny uh, jersey uh, on him. Well, his dad, uh, Brendan, uh, it turns out uh, has gone public to say, yeah, that's my son. Uh, They are from Antrim. And actually, Brendan won, the dad, won an Ulster Minor hurling title. So obviously hurling is in the family. He's, he says about the photograph, he thinks the photograph is absolutely uh, incredible. He explains that little Fiona, who's only two, has been in, is engrossed by the game of hurling and has been before he could even walk. He said he's only two years old, but he just loves being involved with the game. Even in and around the house, he's hurling mad, football mad, and he had a hurl in his hand before the time he was struggling uh, to walk. So it's all pretty cool. So they're actually from County uh, Antrim, but the, the Fionn and his other siblings, they have a variety of different county kits. So they decided at the weekend they were going to be supporting Kilkenny. But it is a terrific photograph, but he's only uh, two. So I would say, listen out for that name, Fionn McGivern. I imagine he is going to be a hurler of the future. Tourism Mecca Killarney is to become the first town in Ireland to remove all takeaway coffee and teacups, a move which could eliminate over one million cups from local waste disposal systems. Louise Byrne is with the Killarney Park and Ross Hotels and she joins me uh, to tell us more about the initiative. Good morning to you, Louise. Good morning, Patricia. And you're very welcome to the programme. Now, it's called the Killarney Coffee Cup Project. Can Can you tell me, please, how it all came about? So, I suppose, internally in the Killarney Park and the Ross, we were looking at our own waste and, and, and how to design waste out of the system. And we noticed coffee cups being an issue. And I don't know if you know, but every year, 200 million um, single-use coffee cups end up in landfill because there's not really many are recycled or actually composted, even though they say they can be. So it was a very obvious source of waste. Um, we were kind of thinking about what we could do ourselves. And then the latte levy came in and we'd actually done a county cleanup. And we'd noticed that a big source of litter in the national park is actually coffee cups. So there was a very obvious action there, you know, and we kind of said, what could we do here? So we brought all the independent coffee shop owners together and had kind of a town hall meeting and said, like, what what could we do? And is this possible? And, you know, there was there was great buy in and enthusiasm because I suppose everyone, you know, benefits from the park every day. So there was an obvious will to protect it. You know, it's a UNESCO biosphere and a special area of conservation. So, you know, the people of Killarney were saying, absolutely, what can we do? And it kind of went from there. And, and, and of course, you have to have buy-in. And, and, and as you say, there was no, everybody says, yeah, great idea. Let's all put our thinking caps together and all get behind this. That's it. Now, how it was to happen obviously kind of helped. I think if, you know, 
five were doing it and others weren't, yeah. then, you know, customers have a choice then and they might go and choose the easy option. Whereas I think the collective really it's is, brilliant. It, it's is brilliant. what makes it work. So and it's then the hotels came in behind it as well. So now we're at over 46 businesses. Um, it was, you know, it's, it's kind of growing every day. 46. So, OK, so it's from yeah. the 31st of this month. So people will just bring their own keep cups um, with them. Are, are you noticing already, Louise, that many people are already doing that? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's that's part of, of it as well, is that we are already noticing a change in consumer behaviours. And, you know, I think customers want this. They want to do the right thing. So we kind of said, look, we lead with a bring your own cup campaign because that's the right thing to do. And seven out of 10 people in Ireland have their own cup. Mm. But, you know, not everybody remembers to bring it. So we're like, we don't actually want to take business away from from these independent coffee shop owners. So we actually partnered with To Go Cup and we're, we've introduced a deposit system for those that do forget to bring their own no, cup. No, I, lo- I love the idea of this. And this will, because obviously Killarney, a lot of tourists uh, will be arriving and maybe yeah. not all of the tourists will bring their Keep Cup uh, with them. Even though I had relatives home from Australia and they brought their own Keep Cups with them. I was, really, I was really impressed, yeah. That's but they're brilliant. very far ahead in, in Australia. Yeah. They're all into their, yeah. their Keep Cups. Um, so... Explain how the the to-go cup works. Okay, so when you go and you order your coffee, you can order a to-go cup for two euros. Okay. But it is a deposit. So you can keep the cup and, and, and it's your cup or you can swap it for a clean one when you go into other places or you can actually give it back and get your two euros back. Whatever brilliant. Whatever is the best. That is brilliant. And any of the participating stores you can give it back to. And they also have 350 other locations around Ireland, including Dublin Airport. So the tourists can pop it back anywhere when as they're leaving, um, which is great, you know. It's brilliant. And this is all, let's be honest, it's all about a, a clean environment. And obviously, for a place like Killarney, it's so important for tourism, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's, I really, I really think people want that positive message. People go there for the lakes, the mountains, the national parks. And, you know, I think it's a great thing to come and see that people are protecting that. You know, it ties in with... with why you would go to somewhere like Killarney. So I think it's a positive message. But we are asking, you know, tour operators, travel agents, <coughs> excuse me, hotels, to tell their guests before they get to Killarney that this is happening. Okay. And, um, you know, that will save that 30-second conversation at the till for the shop owners. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, and are you hoping, Louise, that other towns might follow suit? I mean, ideally it would be great. We're not we're not here to tell other people what to do, but we're happy to share our progress and yeah. what works and what doesn't. And, you know, I mean, like if you look at kind of any reports out there, like, you know, the circularity gap report, they're saying that, you know, if we double the level of circularity globally, we'd close the emissions gap. So, you know, operating within a circular economy is always going to be good for the environment. So we're hoping that what we do, I mean, the one the over a million cups is very significant. So, like, we're hoping it has, like, a, a bigger impact than litter than in the national park. So, like, I mean, if other people want any information, we're happy to share. Yeah, and it's a little bit like uh, when I was thinking about this yesterday, it's a little bit like when the plastic bag levy uh, came in uh, initially. Uh, and now nobody would go shopping without bringing all of their bags no. with them. It just, it becomes a habit. And it yeah. will be the very same with the keep cups. That's why I really do hope that other towns uh, follow suit because for, before you know it, people will just get into the habit of bringing their own cups. Exactly. And of course, you'll save money because the, 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 the latte levy, the 20 cent on every disposable cup, you won't have to pay that. Absolutely. And that's going to increase over time. And, and I suppose it's worth noting that um, 
in that circular economy bill, Ireland has pledged to be the first country in Europe to be single-use coffee cup free. So it's coming anyway. Um, and it, the, that levy is going to increase over time. We just kind of said, look, as a town, what can we do? What's the framework we could put in place to make that transition benefit you know, the, the, the customers and, and the businesses? How do we do it so that you know, it's a positive experience? Okay, well done. And Camille, how is the tourism season going for 2023? Excellent. Is it? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, so that's all good. Yeah, yeah, which is fantastic. A lot of overseas, are the Americans back with a vengeance? They are, are they? they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I suppose like America, you know, they they you know have a lot of convenience and single-use items. So I, th- I think that's a great thing, you know, along the lines of regenerative tourism to kind of when they come here to say, look, you know, Killarney... In Ireland, they're saying, you know, we want to do better. And they might go home with a little bit of a different mindset, you know, which is always good. That'll be a great, a great plus and a great bonus. We wish you well with it, uh, Louise. Thank you for that. Patricia, thanks a million. Thanks for joining us. And uh, a word of warning to all the good people of Cork. If you're heading to uh, Killarney from the 31st of July, bring your own keep cup with you. But if you don't, you can pay uh, two euro and you can get a cup. You can return it and get your two euro back or you can bring it home and use it, as Louise said, in 350 stores around the country as well. Would you like to see uh, other towns here in Cork follow suit? Would you like the idea of a complete ban on disposable uh, cups and for everyone to go down this route of a keep cup. Your thoughts welcome. Text in, no name on this text, but uh, Liz says, hi, I've got an idea on how to solve the GAA Go problem, particularly around the access issue. The GAA should take a free view channel, have a red button option to choose which game you want to watch. Tickets or vouchers could be sold, a little bit like phone credit, and then the code entered into your TV by using your remote control. No need for good broadband or tech skills, and it's just a thought. The service has been available for years in the UK already, so it shouldn't be too difficult to set up here in Ireland. The idea, the GAA Go is a good idea but uh, it, but the way it's been implemented is poor to say the least thanking you and we will always have that access issue until we have proper broadband in this country thank you for that this is a kind of a timely text to give a mention to uh, from Michael who's asked me to wish best of luck to St Oliver Plunkett's Ahiol they're in the Junior Football County Championship final against Ballyfahan and it's on next Saturday in Porky Rin uh, with a throwing time of 3 30. So good luck to all involved there in the Junior Football County Championship final on uh, Saturday. Now somebody else is bringing up uh, the issue we've been talking about RTE and the, what's going on in RTE and of course across the water there's another media organisation in the spotlight I should say a member of staff at a media organisation that of course is what's going on at the BBC. So a listener is making the point that we've now had two UK police forces both saying no information to indicate that any criminal offence has been committed yet we've got uh, the media trying to out uh, somebody and social media in particular has been vicious over the last number of uh, days and of course finally yesterday we got the absolute confirmation of who the person was at the centre of this particular uh, story and it is the well-known BBC newsreader Hugh Edwards. I think he's been with the BBC for almost 40 years now at this stage and it was his wife who came out to say that it is Hugh uh, Edwards. She named him as the BBC presenter facing allegations over payments 
for sexually explicit uh, images. There has been days of speculation as to who was the identity of the presenter of the allegations, but his wife, uh, Vicky, uh, came out yesterday saying she was speaking on behalf of her husband. Uh, She said she did so primarily out of concern for his own mental health and also to protect their five children. She said, and I quote from the statement, Hugh is suffering from a serious mental is suffering from serious mental health issues. As is well documented, he has been treated for several for severe depression in recent years. The events of the last few days have greatly worsened matters. He suffered another serious episode and is now receiving inpatient hospital care where he's going to stay for the foreseeable future. She said once the presenter um, was well enough, he does intend to respond to the stories that have been published and added that her husband was first told that there was allegations being made against him and that was late on uh, Thursday. That was in advance of the sun running with it on Friday morning. She said, I know Hugh is deeply sorry that so many colleagues have been impacted by the recent media speculation. And she said, we hope that this statement will bring an end to that because it has been really, really unfair at the amount of other names working with the BBC and everyone was convinced it was this presenter, it was that presenter and of course it eventually, I mean, I, I think the world and, world and the mother knew it was Hugh Edwards but it had to be confirmed and it, was, it took his wife uh, to confirm it. Sources have made it very clear that Hugh Ed- Edwards has not resigned from the BBC. The presenter has been the face of BBC's editorial and particularly the royal coverage over many years. And of course, everyone will remember Hugh Edwards as the person who announced the death of the late Queen uh, Elizabeth. He's a Welsh-born journalist and broadcaster and he has very openly and very honestly spoken about his mental health uh, issues. For example, he did an interview with the BBC in Wales back in 2019 where he said he was mentally in the wrong place when he was physically unhealthy. Then he also revealed in a documentary a couple of years ago that he has had bouts of depression over the years. Some of them have been so bad that they've left him bedridden. And he said he's been battling major depressive episodes since 2002. And of course, when the wife, his wife made the statement uh, yesterday, that actually came almost at the same time as the Metropolitan Police saying no criminal offence has been committed by the uh, presenter. And now that the police have stopped their investigation, that leads the way for the BBC to continue with their, with theirs. They say a statement, uh, the statement from the Met Police to the cooperation, to the corporation uh, was, was brilliant, was very gratefully received and that they were glad that they completed the work at such uh, speed. And the BBC now will move forward with their work ensuring the due process and a thorough assessment of the facts while continuing to be mindful of the duty of care to all involved. And it was a week ago to tomorrow that the Sun newspaper they were the first to report on allegations against at that stage it was an unnamed presenter saying the person had been paid and at the time it was intimated that it was a young person was paid tens of thousands of pounds for sexually explicit uh, images and then on Sunday the BBC issued an update to staff and to the media and at that stage they confirmed again an unnamed presenter had been suspended and then the week rolled on which is which as I say a lot of other names uh, were uh, mentioned so we wait for Hugh Edwards 
uh, to get back to normal health and as, he's, as his wife says he is intending on speaking out about exactly uh, what has happened but he's another example of uh, somebody in the public eye who has been very open about his uh, depression and that's you know not it's a completely separate issue to the investigation that the BBC are doing um, with the, the cases of these uh, images and also I was seeing this morning that other members of staff at the BBC are coming out claiming that they are they're facing allegations are, are they're coming out with stories about Hugh Edwards for example some of the workers are saying they received inappropriate messages from him some of them came late at night and they were signed off with kisses and that many of them were junior staff so they were reluctant to complain because obviously Hugh Edwards was such a high profile uh, colleague and they were afraid it would affect their careers so the BBC are obviously all looking in uh, to uh, that but as the BBC he said mindful of the fact of everybody and the duty of care for everybody involved particularly the fact that he is suffering a major d- depressive episode at the moment and actually only um, Tuesday we were talking about depression with uh, Joe Heffernan and talking about you know how would you know that you're suffering from depression or how would you know if you just because everyone can go through periods where they are feeling low and the one thing that I spoke about with Joe was the need to talk to people and to open up about depression because so many people keep it quiet for so long and I suppose Hugh Edwards is a tip example of that when he finally decided to go public in 2019 to talk about his mental health uh, issues he at that stage was saying he has been battling with it since 2002 so for so many many years a man who was very much in the public eye uh, hid it and I was making the point to Joe that are we moving on from that is it okay to talk about your mental health and I think younger people in particular seem to be very alert to mental health issues and seem to be really good at talking about their own mental health and I think that bodes well for the future well that prompted one of our listeners to contact us by email following our chat with Joe on Wednesday to say I heard you on the programme talking this week about mental health. I recently received help at Bantry Hospital for my own mental health. Life simply got so much for me. Part of the talk mentioned this week was about not being ashamed about telling people. Well, I've started to tell my family that I've been struggling with my mental health. The only one, though, I can't tell is my father and my father is who I live with. It is, I can only say, a work in progress. I am receiving lots of help from some amazing people. And the reason I'm writing this email is that I agree totally. People shouldn't be ashamed to ask for help. I'd like to say a really, really big thank you to Bantry Hospital. Please, if you decide to read out uh, this email for obvious reasons, don't call out my name and keep up the good work. That's fantastic. And, and obviously, of course, we, we won't call out uh, your name. And I really do hope that you get to be able to sit down and have that conversation with your dad. Now, your dad is obviously of a different generation and that might be, you might be uh, afraid of what his reaction will be. But at the end of the day, you are his much loved son. And I'm sure uh, if you explain to him what's going on and you explain that you are getting help, but I'm delighted to see that you've reached out and you are talking to family. And I take it from your text that your family have been supportive, but nobody needs uh, to be ashamed. You know, if you break a leg, we put a cast on it. If God forbid you were to be diagnosed with cancer, you'd get chemotherapy, you'd get radiation, whatever other treatment uh, would be necessary. If you were diabetic, you'd take insulin. Why is it that we can't openly say, I'm having a problem in my head, I'm just not feeling
feeling right and it's okay to say that you're not feeling okay so we wish you nothing but good luck on your journey and you certainly sound like you're on the right, right path and well done to everybody in Bantry Hospital for looking after you so well 0818 103 103 John Paul's taking your calls you can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103 C103 Jobs Now a junior level administrator is wanted in the Boherbui uh, area you need to send your CV to Claire at ingredientsolutions.net Mallow Print they've got vacancies for a junior graphic designer and they're also looking for a part-time reception slash admin slash accounts assistant please apply with a cover letter to CVs to jobs at malloprint.com CE schemes available in Churchtown in Fremont in Niscarroll in Milford and in Dramina now all applicants must be in receipt of a qualifying social welfare payment and you need to be in receipt of that payment for at least 12 months now you can apply to your local intro office or Evelyn can give you further details at 085 8664039 and full and part-time mobile security officers are wanted it's for a night shift in the North Cork area CVs please to accounts at guardforce.ie or you can call 022 51427 you'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more this is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Court today at C103.ie. Court today on C103. Now, at the end of last month, there really was a chilling warning about Zaporizhzhia, which is home to the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, with intelligence claiming that Russia has plans to blow it up. Now, a lady who knows all about the dangers of nuclear power is Aidy Roach of the Chernobyl Children's Project International. And Aidy joins me uh, this morning by WhatsApp. Good morning to you, Aidy. Good morning, Patricia, and thank you for having me on well, you're very... and for picking up this story. Yeah, I, because I really don't think it's getting enough attention. And the warning is coming from Ukrainian intelligence that the cooling pond of the nuclear plant has been mined by Russian troops. How concerned Correct. do we need to be about this? Well, I suppose the only way I could put it is we cannot overstate how critical the situation is at the moment and how serious the nuclear threat actually is. I mean, we are potentially talking about something that could be catastrophic, almost like a humanitarian Armageddon. And like there, we're now hearing from President Zelensky that not just is there the problem with the cooling ponds where there are, you know, millions of tons of radioactive water, but that they actually have put bombs on the roofs of two of the nuclear reactors. And we are talking about something that would make Hiroshima, Nagasaki pale into insignificance. We would be talking about a catastrophe beyond anything um, we could even possibly imagine in the most horrendous situation. And there would be no coming back from it, Patricia. There would be no evacuations. There would be no way of recovering. And like, I mean, we're really trying to say that the world, we ignore this at our peril. Like, it's like a roller 
flipping of the dice, Patricia. And if we continue time after time, ignoring the signs and ignoring the intelligence that's coming from there, our luck is going to run out. We have got to stop it in its tracks because we know from the get go of this war, this is a war like no ever modern warfare we've ever seen when they took over Chernobyl on those first hours and weeks of the war. That showed us that they're willing to weaponize, they're willing to, to nuclearize this war. And um, that is a crime against humanity. So we have got to pull ourselves back from the brink of really annihil annihilation. And we've got to work on de-escalation. That is the most critical thing and Ireland has such a vital role that we could play as a neutral country. And like this is what we have a good history in doing, um, Patricia. Like rather than paralyzing ourselves and paralyzing your listeners with this potential nuclear Armageddon, we want to activate people into saying there is still time for us to bring it back from the brink and to call for peace. Yeah, because as you know, a statement I've often, often heard you uh, say is like radiation knows no borders. So this isn't something that we can say, oh, that would be dreadful for the people of Ukraine if something was to happen at that plant. An explosion of that plant would surely also affect Russia. Well, this is the craziness of it. Like, you know, as you say, it knows no boundaries. It knows no ethnicity. It doesn't know any religious differences, colour differences. It is indiscriminate in what it attacks, whether it's an unborn baby in a mother's womb, a small baby in a cot or a fully grown adult. It, it, it will attack at all levels and, of course, the land as well. It would actually wipe out all of Europe and beyond. I mean, like we've looked at some of the figures of what would happen in the immediacy of um, an explosion or a weapon exploding one of the reactors. And, and to be honest, I have decided not to go to those figures because it is mind numbing. I, I prefer to work on the doctor's dictum that prevention is the only cure because, you know, I mean, the future of humanity is at stake here. And I mean, you know, there's a particular unpredictability about this war. It is increasing in terms of volatility every single day. And it seems to be getting harsher, longer, like Belarus taking in tactical nuclear weapons on its borders. Like all of these things are really bad signs of where the track we're going on at the moment. And particularly now we're in the run up to the anniversary of the dropping of the first bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki on the 6th and 9th of August, which happened in 1945. And we know the hundreds of thousands of people that died in seconds after the dropping of those bombs, those bombs will pale into nothingness almost in comparison to what the potential from Zaborosia would be. And uh, and like you know, we know, uh, Patricia, that is it has become like the front line. Both sides are fighting in and around this area. It is completely unsafe. There are poor, hundreds of poor scientists and workers inside in those reactors. They must be at their wits end, mentally, psychologically, not knowing what's going to happen. And what we have to do is to deploy United Nations observer corps, put them in around the site, de-escalate the situation. 
and at the United Nations Security Council, where we have a very, very strong presence at the moment, and it's great that we have a seat at that table at the minute, that we could, through our diplomacy, negotiation skills and dialogue, bring this back from the brink. And Patricia, this might sound airy-fairy, but we have a wonderful example in, in history of where this has happened, happened previously in the infamous Cuban Missile Crisis where nuclear weapons and there was a threat of nuclear war between the Soviet Union then and the rest of the world and the world would have been annihilated. And through diplomacy and dialogue, that was was averted yeah. and um, it was de-escalated. So it can, it can, so we, it can happen. But is, is the area of the power plant, is that still under Russian control? It is. Okay. It is. It is all that. I, I, and you know, I I have nightmares about this, Patricia, because you know this isn't something that we can play with, or that we can wait and see with. Like it really is like we're playing with a loaded gun, and we, you know, we've only so many times that we can get away without this exploding, and already there has been there have been minor incidents um you know like they're working now off their backup generators imagine that like they they're working on one backup electric generator like and if even if it wasn't a deliberate act of explosion it can happen just by accident because nuclear reactors have to be kept cool that is why they're beside huge bodies of water like the river Dnieper which is where it gets its water supply to keep the reactors cool if the cooling pipes which need pumps electric pumps to keep them going to pull in the water from the river if that stops for for some reason and we're very close to that several times we are talking about a massive meltdown beyond anything we could ever imagine and, and the reports and are the, the reports are i mean it's currently been run by a skeleton crew there isn't even a, a, full, a full crew, crew in no. there no yeah, there's not the pressure they must be under Patricia, some of them have been suicidal. Some of them have had in their complete breakdowns. They are working with the under the barrel of a gun to their heads every single day. And this has gone on for months. It's like a form of torture. And they know themselves if they make one mistake, one mistake that it could buy. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Accident create this nuclear disaster. Wow. And that's the awful thing. It might happen through the breakdown emotionally, psychologically of personnel. It may happen that, um, you know, the, the electricity breaks down. That one generator that's left breaks down, that the cooling pipes can no longer cool and a reactor can explode and there will be no controlling that. Someone we wants to, to know are, back, a listener wants to know could you ask AD are there international experts monitoring the plant at the moment? They are, well they're, they, they have been trying to do their best to be honest the International Atomic Energy Agency but they're at the stage where they're pulling their hair out because the negotiations have broken down. I think, Patricia, in the very early days of the war, you and I spoke about, you know, what could we do when they took over Chernobyl, not knowing that they were going to take over an even worse place in Zaporozhye. But we spoke about this being a war crime and that we should invoke the Hague Convention, which defines the takeover of a nuclear facility as a war crime. We really should have started then the process of that, which would have maybe deterred the the Russians from actually taking over a nuclear plant. But they got away with it in Chernobyl and they immediately went on to take over Zaporozhye, which is a zillion times worse. The International Atomic Energy Agency have been trying to get it declared, which we have been calling for, and no war zone. And so far, they have not been able to um, to implement that because there hasn't been an in- enough international pressure. Like, that's why we're not. Patricia, you're the only one that has been uh, that has actually picked this story up. And that's the truth from the whole country. And like this should be front page news. It should be being discussed at the Dáil at the moment. We should be getting our Department of Foreign Affairs, our Taoiseach, for them to push, push, push for the no war zone to de-escalate because, you know, the future is unthinkable. It, I mean, it is just unthinkable. The worst movie we've ever seen or projected would, would pale. We've got to de-escalate. We've got to call for peace and we've got to take this out of the war front. It, we cannot play with nuclear power stations. This is the first time in the history of the atomic age that we have weaponized, nuclearized nuclear power stations. And our fear is if they get away with it in Ukraine, what will other rogue countries do? They also have nuclear power facilities in other countries because the message will be you can get away with this and you can hold the world to ransom anytime you like. This has never happened before. We've got to. We've got to come down really heavy on getting this declared a no war zone. Okay, and well I am begging your listeners to 
help us to do that. Okay. This is a war crime. Well said. You're, 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 as, you're as passionate as ever. I can't have you on without asking how is your work uh, getting on, particularly in Belarus. Are you able to get any work done in Belarus at the moment? Oh, listen, thanks for giving us a little a time to say a good news story. Do you know what? Despite all of the sanctions and be, despite everything that's going on in Belarus with the involvement with the Ukrainian war, I mean, as I have said from the get-go, Patricia, our, our agreement, our covenant is with the children and it's with the people. And the great news is our staff force of Belarusian people, 60 strong, are, are minding the children, minding the babies. They're doing the work. They are continuing. They are so brave each and every day without our support being there on the ground. They are doing it in the name of the children. And as I'm talking to you on the radio today, we actually have a team of cardiac surgeons that have run the gauntlet into Lviv, which got bombed last week. They are there carrying out life-saving cardiac surgeries on children that have a condition that they cannot live with, but will die with without our intervention. And as I'm talking to you and you're talking to me in Mallow, I swear to God, we have a 12-strong international team saving the lives of babies and children. And that's been made possible by the people of Ireland. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Keep up the good work, uh, Aidy. And thanks a million for joining us on the programme today. Thanks, Patricia. Good morning to you. That is uh, A.D. Roach of the Chernobyl Children's Project uh, International. Actually, I was just spotted uh, online about that team that have flown uh, to, uh, well, they've gone by bus uh, to Lviv. Uh, They flew into uh, Krakow and they've gone by bus uh, to Lviv. Uh, These fantastic cardiac uh, specialists going into work on these babies and one little one mother who has a critically ill little baby said we're in the middle of a war feeling so alone the walls are shaking the missile strikes come so often I feared my little baby would die but now we have so much hope I can now dream of seeing my baby grow up it is a miracle Court today on C103 Now it's certainly been a busy week for the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Sports and Media and yesterday the committee held two sessions to discuss the future of sports broadcasting in Ireland. Representing the Independent Broadcasters of Ireland, of which we here at C103 are members, was John Purcell and John is the chairperson of the IBI and he joins me this morning. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Patricia, and uh, good morning to your listeners. Oh, you're very welcome. Now, all of the main sporting bodies, all of the main media organisations were all present uh, yesterday. Talk to me, uh, John, about how how important sports is, how important a role role sports plays in the output of local radios. Well, huge, really. I mean, in terms of the output, we heard yesterday from uh, RTE that they broadcast about 68 68 GA matches in a year. And I think to put that into perspective, we've done a quick tot and we think the number of GA matches broadcast on independent radio is in the thousands. Um, you know, you've got club matches, you've got county championships, you've got uh, the league, the All-Ireland series and so on. So it's a huge contribution, but not only in GA, but also soccer, rugby, all that kind of stuff. We do huge volumes of sports coverage uh, and radio is a huge part of of sports broadcasting and I suppose my role there yesterday uh, as you say um, Virgin TV were there Sky were there RTE were there a lot of discussion about television a lot of discussion about different platforms a lot of discussion about GA Go but I just want to really keep radio to front of mind because it's a hugely important medium in the coverage of sport Yeah yeah, 100% um, and then is funding an issue 
when it comes to sports uh, coverage at independent radio stations because like we would broadcast a lot of matches we have a really really dedicated uh, sports uh, crew uh, particularly that covered the GAA matches but we John would often get criticism on a Monday oh why didn't you broadcast such and such a match but a lot of that comes down to funding doesn't it? It does indeed. I mean, I think people need to understand or we're happy to have an opportunity to explain to people, you know, stations like C103, uh, your commercial radio station, um, and so is the station that I operate, KCLR, which is in Carlow and Kilkenny. So, you know, people will be very familiar over the last number of weeks. a lot of talk about the dual funding model of uh, RTE uh, and they get funding from the license fee which people pay also a huge amount of commercial revenue and increasingly uh, yesterday highlighted the fact that they're 50% shareholders in GA Go so they get revenue from GA Go there so basically for a local station to cover a match um, you know you have to pay the people who are involved you have to pay travel you have to pay technical costs you have to pay all of that sort of stuff and the costs do build up and also often what people don't uh, understand is during uh, a 70 minute uh, GA match or if it goes on for 80 or 90 minutes there's no ad breaks during those matches either so we lose revenue from that point of view so we're you know we're largely relying on sponsorship and so on Uh, and you know with the advent of social media and the internet and all that that's under increasing pressure so the point the point i made yesterday was people can't take for granted the continuation of free-to-air radio coverage because uh, it costs money and there's no support Um, there's no support for us to continue to do it so the future of media commission looked at the future of media in ireland and it published its report uh, one year ago yesterday exactly Uh, so it's a year and a day on but there was no support really for sport Um, it was the sport the 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 support that is envisaged for sport will come under what they call the news scheme, which is yet to be established. But that also has to cover European and international affairs, social affairs, the environment, health, transport, agriculture, and so on and so on. And so there's no support for the continuation of sport on independent radio. And we think in an era where GA go, more matches are going behind pay for purview, uh, all that stuff sports rights are increasingly fall, falling outside the, the the reach of many Irish broadcasters paid for or not. We just think the special place of radio needs to be maintained and protected and the politicians and the department and the regulator and the minister and all those people with responsibility for the oversight of it just need to bear that in mind. Yeah, and I, I mentioned it earlier, our thanks to Ed, uh, uh, Deputy Thomas Gould, we got a, a royal mention at C103 did yesterday. He because... did indeed, and much, much deserved. <laughs> you know, and he spoke very passionately he did. about the, he did. the value of local coverage, which, yeah. you know, it needs to be said. And it's funny, Wendy, because, you know, I, I watched it live yesterday and as you say, you know, a, a lot of the commentary was to do with uh, TV and in the main, uh, people wanted to talk about uh, GAA Go and we would have had a lot of commentary in from listeners when, you know, cork matches went behind a, a paywall on GAA Go. But one of the biggest problems was people living in very rural areas is, is broadband uh, access. Mm. And I remember on the Monday after the match, the amount of people who contacted us to say, thank God for C103 because we had our team out uh, commentating on it. So if if our, if GAA decides to continue with the paywall, that's where the local stations, more and more people are going to be relying on the local station for their coverage. 
Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think people, the discussion often is around um, TV and pictures as if everybody is just sitting down, but people are on the move. They're in their cars, they're working, they're in shops, they're out for walks and so on. And they still want to keep up to date with matches and what's going on. And radio provides unrivaled um, coverage in that respect. And also, I think the whole thing, apart from just covering it, um, I think that local radio brings a unique flavour um, and a passion and enthusiasm. And I know your own party Palmer, God be good to him, you know, was legendary around the country in terms of, of his commentaries and so on. And you just don't get that in national behind paywalls or without paywalls. You know, local radio and the local sports coverage, because it's probably not 100% balanced impartial uh, and, you know, taking a dispassionate view, it gets the passion across. And you, you're in no doubt usually on, on a local radio where, where the commentary team is coming <laughs> and from. And there's no harm in that. And that's the way it should be. So a listener is wondering, uh, what's John's view on minority sports? Uh, should local radio stations give more airtime to minority sports? I think so, yeah. And I think many, many uh, stations are doing that. We have a finite amount of airtime like everybody else, but I think we can help and we do help, you know. Um, uh, I, I don't like the term minority sports, but maybe a diversity of sports. We're, we're starting to do more camogie in Kilkenny, uh, for example. Uh, I'm not saying camogie is a minority sport, but, you know, whether it's badminton or tennis or greyhound racing or, or so on we can help you don't have to be doing live commentaries on every single event but coverage in news and sport and oftentimes it's just a case of people contacting their local radio station and say look will you give a shout out to this match or that match or this sporting event i've never met a, a local radio station who'll turn away um information about a sporting event no matter what kind of sport it is yeah yeah so so while it was you know, as i say yesterday it was all about uh, tv do you feel you got a fair hearing Oh, I did. I mean, I mean, the the one thing about the politicians on on the um, uh, joint Rockdus committee on media is they're all uh, canny and they know the value of local radio. And there's elections in the air, and they know that you know while you can have national uh, broadcasters and so on, if you want to get your message across, and that's for incumbent politicians or candidates, uh, local radio is an unrivaled. Um, medium you know there's all this talk about social media and the internet and so on but you know radio along with tv is up there in terms of trust i think uh, i was looking at the future media commission i think on a scale of one to ten uh, radios in or around eight in terms of the trust levels in radio whereas if you actually look um, at social media it's down around the one hovering between one and two so i mean you know my message is uh, you know, don't take radio for granted. Don't take sports on radio for granted. There are threats. We can't be complacent. And, you know, with the with the way technology comes on, there was a talk yesterday about, you know, GAA Go was actually launched largely to bring GAA to the diaspora. Yeah. Um, COVID uh, brought about a situation whereby, you know, uh, there was a big rush towards seeing matches that people couldn't actually attend. They've kind of turned that on its head now, whereas uh, if I remember correctly, uh, they said yesterday most of the audience for GA Go is uh, domestic. Mm. Uh, and so all 
of a sudden we're faced with the situation where more than people envisaged matches they want to see are going behind paywalls. That happened very quickly and we need to be careful and we need to take stock that the radio uh, coverage which is provided free to air which doesn't cost anybody any money but which costs uh, and increasingly costs radio operators to provide uh, that that's protected because um, we think sport just as news and current affairs is a public service sport is a public service too because it gives people a release it gives people a sense of identity it it kind of crosses uh, social and economic barriers, it unites people, it gives people a lift in the hard times, it promotes passion, it promotes commitment and it promotes a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, there was talk yesterday about when people see or hear coverage of sport, it encourages them to actually adopt healthy lifestyles as well. So we think sport, you know, hugely is a public service on independent radio um, and it needs to be protected, it needs to be nurtured and indeed it needs to be celebrated. Well said, well said. And what about, uh, John, the future of uh, local radio? I mean, if you look across the water in the in the UK, unfortunately we're seeing more local radio stations uh, running just limited uh, programming with, you know, the majority of programmes, say, coming from London. Would you worry about that for for Irish radio going forward? I, I'm confident about the future for, for radio uh, and Irish independent radio, but I'm not at all complacent. And we have to keep the appalling vista of what's happened in the UK, where, you know, um, services to local audiences are scaled back, not only by independent and commercial uh, radio stations, but by the BBC, who've who've kind of eviscerated a lot of their local radio services, you know, and centralised them. It's all due to um, it's all due to uh, finances and so on. It's very important that that's not allowed to happen here, and that the the debate isn't um, dominated by RTE. Understandably, there's a lot, lot of talk the last couple of weeks about the importance of RTE and so on, and particularly about the program banned between uh, nine and ten in the morning, and we know the amounts of money that are involved there and so on. But it's it's useful to look at the number of people listening to. RTE in the morning between nine and ten, as I mentioned, is about three hundred and two thousand, according to the latest Jane Law. The amount listening to independent radio stations such as C one oh three, such as Casey Law, when you put them all together is seven hundred and forty two thousand. So more than double. You know, more than double. And so it's important that when we when we have the debate um that there's a share of voice for independent radio and you know, the public uh, who are listening to us today can't be complacent about the, the future of it. Um, we need to be confident about the, the future, but we need to not be shy in telling our politicians how valuable it is. And we're not just talking about the commercial aspects of it. We're talking about all the public service, you know, the debate, the forum you provide for people to discuss issues, how you hold politicians and those in positions of responsibility to account and so on. And that's really important for a democracy. Um, I mentioned earlier on about the trust element. The day that trust disappears and we don't have media that we can trust to give local information, regional information and national information is is the day our, our democracy and our society will be in trouble. And, you know, one of the reasons that people attribute the um, uh, the divisions in society in the United States is the, is the, the withering and dying of local media. Um, so there's very little local media in the United States. So people don't have the opportunity to discuss 
local issues, to discuss the bread and butter stuff of keeping communities going, to okay. discuss the local roads. Well, lo- and so long on and may so we continue. That's so important. Long may we continue, John. Listen, it was a real pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for that, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Patricia. And well done yesterday. You did really well. Thanks for joining oh, thank us. Uh, good morning to you. That is the chair of the broadcasters of Ireland, the IBI, John Purse. I'll see some questions coming in for Jane Pickett, our resident vet. Keep those questions coming, uh, please. You can get them into me at the studio 0862103103. Text or WhatsApp. But John Paul is also taking calls at 0818103103. Some of your commentary into the programme this morning on GAA Go, which we spoke about earlier uh, this morning. Patrick from Oi said there's only one thing you need to know about GAA Go. It's all about profit. And that's what the bottom line uh, is. Yeah, well, the, the GAA, in fairness, yesterday said it brought in four million. Now, I don't know if that is four million just for the GAA or did the GAA get four million and did RTE get four million or is the four million uh, split between them because it is a 50-50 split between RTE and uh, GAA even though the GAA promised that Oireachtas uh, Committee at the end of the year they are going to review it so only time will tell. Mary in Charleville was listening about GAA now she works in University Hospital in Limerick and she said whenever there is a match on and there are elderly people who are patients in the hospital. Mary said it is just so sad uh, to hear them say how disappointed they are that whatever match is on, that it's not going to be on the TV. She said these are people who gave up their lives supporting the GAA. Uh, they were the ones that were there through the very hard times for the GAA, both at intercounty and supporting local teams. And yet here they are in the twilight days of, twilight hours of their years and they cannot watch the game on TV and said okay some of the matches might be on GAA Go but it won't be possible for the hospital to stream it live to every patient in the hospital. The country is is now gone to it's all about greed. It's all about profit. The other issue is that they have introduced GAA Go in this country when broadband is so poor in many areas and that can be you can get it is very bad in rural areas, but it can happen in urban areas as well. You can have houses that just simply can't get a decent uh, broadband. They're not thinking of everyone, says Marion Charleville. And it was one of the points that Senator Marie Sherlock made until broadband is 100% all over the country, then surely we shouldn't be offering or thinking about GAA Go in this country. Remember, it was introduced in 2014 for the diaspora. It was introduced for the people overseas. It was never brought in um, with local people in mind or Irish people, uh, Irish people living in Ireland in mind. It was the pandemic kind of started all of that. And I suppose the GAA then saw this as a way for us to make extra funding. 0818103103. We've been talking this week about cattle and baby calves in particular when we were talking about the RTE Investigates programme. Margaret in Mill Street was on to say, she said she thinks it's in the DNA of farmers to own as many cattle as possible. She said in the in the 70s, ca- cattle were sold in one mart or another and they were more or less pushed in or out. She's saying there was always abuse of animals. We also had herd numbers increasing over the years and that has increased and decreased. We're going 
going back to the days of Coo Cullen, the more animals you had, the more well off you were seen to be. And she feels that still remains today in the DNA of farmers. Mar- Margaret also feels a lot of this is tunnel vision, putting all your eggs in one basket, for example. Dairy farmers who just concentrate on dairying or cattle farmers who just have cattle stock farmers. They should be willing to diversify because what if something uh, goes wrong? One oh eight one eight one oh three one oh three, and then on my chat with Ad Roach in the last hour, which was quite frightening at times, talking about what could go wrong in Ukraine if that nuclear power plant decides uh, to uh, blow up. One person says, Patricia, it's time to put Mr Putin back in his box. No one in the world appears to be doing anything about this man. It's time to stop him, especially with his crimes against humanity. But it's the trying to stop him appears to be the problem. And the world seems to be leaving it to Ukraine at the moment uh, to try to uh, stop him. Hi, uh, Patricia. I heard Eddie Roach on your programme saying what... Vladimir Putin is doing is perpetrating war crimes. If so, why isn't he being charged with them? Well, I think one day he will be. But when is that day going to come? I don't know. Someone else says if the nuclear reactor, if the, if the nuclear power plant that AD is talking about is so bad, why don't they shut the re- reactor down? Well, they have. The, the, the Zaporizhzhia plant has six nuclear reactors. Five of them are what's in cold shutdown and one is in hot shutdown. But the one that's in hot shut, shut, shutdown is currently being run by a skeleton crew. Remember that this plant is now under Russian control and the skeleton crew that are in there are working with guns uh, to their head. And it isn't just a simple of, oh, we'll close it down and all will be fine because Ukraine intelligence uh, reckon what's happened now is in the plants, the five cold shutdown plants in the cooling parts of it that they've been mined and there's also uh, uh, stories of uh, the Russians have put mines on the roof the idea would be, I'm assuming the idea would be if they lost the war they would simply blow it up but like it, it absolutely makes no sense because it won't only take out all of Europe it'll take out huge swathes of Russia as well but then when you're dealing basically with a mad man you really don't know what is going through that man's uh, head. Hi Patricia, thank you for interviewing A.D. Roach on your programme uh, today. She is an incredible Irish icon. Her impact on the children affected by Chernobyl is genuinely awesome and her zest for continuing her work is truly inspiring. She really is a hero of our time. Thank you for having her on uh, the programme. Yeah, and actually I thought it was kind of a bit scary to hear her say nobody else is talking about it, I thought, because when we were having a programming discussion, uh, myself and John Paul in the office, and we were deciding uh, to bring AD on to to the programme one day uh, this week, I thought she would have been inundated with people asking for her opinion because, you know, she knows what the lie of the land is like over there. So I was surprised to hear it's almost like people are turning, uh, the world seems to be turning a blind eye to it, hoping that nothing will go wrong at that at that nuclear power plant. And it is, as I say, it is the biggest nuclear power plant in uh, Europe. And remember when the listeners saying, why don't they just shut it down? The Chernobyl accident happened when they were shutting down a reactor. So it's a very dangerous time for reactors when you're actually closing them down. But thank you for your commentary on that to 0862103103. Catherine listening to us in the city has children in primary school and she said, I would dearly love if all of our primary schools decided to introduce a, mo- a no mobile phone rule 
uh, until children, young children get to secondary school. Similar to Kat, Kat says to what some town up the country is uh, doing it. How did they do it and why can't we follow suit? Well, what you're talking about is Greystones in uh, County Wicklow. They have this no smartphone uh, pledge. And actually, it's interesting that you contacted us about that today, uh, Cathy, because the Education Minister, Norma Foley, was only talking about this yesterday. And she said that what Greystones are doing, they have eight primary schools in Greystones in County Wicklow that have this no smartphone pledge. She said she'd love to see that being adopted in other towns, cities and indeed across the country. Minister Foley said her department research into cyberbullying has found that parents and children were terrified what she described as the wild west of phones and that schools should provide a safe and a secure setting for young children to excel in. It was for this reason that she said she was very interested in the recent coverage of the group of eight primary schools in Greystones where all of the parents' associations had agreed to this no smartphone. Now, it's a voluntary code and they've all agreed that they will not buy their child a smartphone until that child reaches secondary school. And the move uh, followed rising concerns locally in Greystones over anxiety levels among pupils and their early exposure to adult online material. And it's called It Takes a Village Initiative, which I thought was a really clever name for it. And it's been led by a a lady called Rachel Harper. She's the principal of one of the national schools in uh, Greystones. And she said uh, they aim to provide cross-community support and access to counselling or play therapy, particularly for vulnerable young children in the area. Now, Minister Foley says it is in its early days, but she does believe that as a country, we can learn from the model in Greystones and then see if it can be replicated in schools and classrooms all over the country. She said what stood out for her most about the Greystones project was the fact that the whole community, there was a a whole community buy-in from parents in every class, in every one of the eight primary schools in uh, Greystones. She said there was no high-level diktat. Nobody was being ordered not to buy their child a mobile phone. But instead, the schools undertook the much more intensive work of persuasion and discussion to best provide a pathway forward for the community. Now, she was speaking yesterday at the Children's Rights Alliance Ireland event. It was an event actually that was sponsored by the National Parents uh, Council. And uh, she said at that that cyberbullying has emerged as the single most pressing issue for young people in this country and for their uh, parents. And that was during uh, consultations as part of her um, department's latest action plan to try to stop uh, bullying. And obviously bullying includes cyberbullying. She said, for better or for worse, these devices and platforms are here to stay. So she said, now it's incumbent on all of us as adults, everyone within the school community to provide safe and secure spaces that can allow young children to achieve and to excel in school without what they themselves describe as FOMO, and that's the fear of uh, missing out. And that's why you'll have the children 
then that nagging that goes on. Can I have a mobile phone because everybody else in my class has one and they've got that child has FOMO. I'm going to miss out if I'm the only one without a mobile phone. Whereas if it's introduced in every single primary school that no child has a mobile phone, then you're not going to have that kind of pressure being put on parents. Minister Foley said that schools, parents and the wider community all need to work together to address many of the challenges that are now facing young people and challenges that are facing young people that were never there in the past. Uh, And we've always had bullying. I mean, I think bullying has always been there. But what happened in former times was a child went home from school and once they went home from school, they were safe from it. Now, if they have a mobile phone or a mobile device and they're on social media, that bullying follows them home and that bullying can go on all night uh, long. Uh, she said the Greystones model illustrates there is power in community and she said there is power in the collective. A significant learning outcome and a reminder for all of us in the education sector. Now social media firms meanwhile they're also facing calls to do more to stop the sharing particularly of inappropriate content. They're also being called on to enforce the minimum age limits and to create some kind of default settings for children with high safety uh, standards. And actually the online safety commissioner, that's Neve um, Hodnett, she said recently she had to ask several social media platforms to take down a video that had been shared more than five million times. And that was the, do you remember that alleged uh, hate-based attack on the schoolboy in uh, Navan? It was shocking the way that video I remember when it first started to get shared every time I went on I picked up my phone or I went on to social media somebody else was sharing that video it ended up being shared more than five million times and and even at that you know with everybody complaining and giving out about it it still took our online safety commissioner she had to get onto the social media platforms to say please you need to take uh, this down so and, and I know we have discussed this uh, before in the past is that the way forward to try to at least protect the, the children under what are they under the age of 12 they're usually 12 or a little bit over 12 by the time they head into uh, secondary school it would be a way of protecting them if none of them were allowed mobile phones but it definitely does take the collective you need to have everybody on board from the teachers uh, to the parents and obviously there has to be a level of buy-in from the children as well 0818 103 103 John Paul continues to take your calls and we are looking for pet questions because Jane Pickett our resident vet will be joining us later on this hour The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at Cork Coast there will be a Kaylee in the Marion Hall in Ballinhasic uh, tomorrow night. It starts at half past nine with music by Jerry McCarthy. Admission is ten euro and it does include teas. Ballin Colleague Vintage Motor Club. Now they're holding a charity cars and coffee morning. It'll be followed by a vintage car run and it's on next Sunday. Uh, coffee in Ballancolic Rugby Club at 11 and that's followed by the Vintage Run at 1 and it's all in aid of Avine's Children's Charity. The 20-year rule applies. There'll be an illustrated talk on the Elizabethan conquest of Ireland. It'll be given by James Charles Roy, who's author and historian based in Donnerwell Court. It'll happen on Sunday next at four. The talk if presented by the, the, will be presented by the Office of Public Works. It's part of their 2023 cultural programme at Donnerwell Court. And tickets can be booked if you'd like to attend by going to eventbrite.ie. 
and Mellory Vintage Club will host a vintage working day next uh, Sunday. It's at Ballinamila in Kappa in County Waterford. The gates will open at 11. There'll be vintage silage cutting, vintage show, food village, music and dancing. And proceeds are going to the wonderful Peter McVerry Trust and the South East Radiotherapy Trust. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. And pet questions, uh, please, you can keep them coming. I can see some coming into us already. If you are heading away in your holidays and you're going to mainland Europe uh, anytime over the next few days or across this weekend, just be uh, warned you're heading into really, really high uh, temperatures. And we are right in the middle of the holiday season now that the schools are off for summer and into July it's when thousands of holidaymakers are uh, heading uh, abroad and there's going to be they reckon record breaking temperatures across Europe in the coming days extreme heat is set to engulf Europe once again now it's very much a repeat of last uh, summer with meteorologists in countries such as Spain Italy and Greece are warning of really dangerous conditions over the next few days and into next week. For example, for this week more than 100 weather stations in Spain uh, alone this is just in Spain, yesterday they recorded temperatures of 35 degrees but wait for this, that was at 6am yesterday morning and and as the day goes on it got even uh, hotter. Spain's National Weather Agency are warning that hot winds blowing from the interior are causing the temperatures to simply soar. In Italy 10 cities including France and Florence, very popular tourist destinations, they have all been put on alert for extreme temperatures. Some parts of the country uh, yesterday reaching highs of 45 degrees. The islands of Sicily and Sardinia they could surpass 45 degrees over the next few days. That's the warning coming in from uh, scientists and the Italian Meteorological Service say that the earth has a high fever and Italy is feeling it first hand. In Greece um, officials put a complete ban on access to any of their nature reserves and any of their forests and that's obviously over fears of wild uh, fires while working animals such as animals and donkeys that normally offer rides in tourist areas all of that has been curtailed so well done uh, from an from an animal rights uh, point of view temperatures in Greece this week are predicted to reach at least 44 degrees celsius now europe recorded its hottest ever summer last year but scientists are return, warning that the return of the warning, the El Nino pattern, is likely to spike temperatures even further at this year, which means the records that were broken last year are going to be broken again this year. A study in uh, the Medical Nature magazine this week has estimated that more than 61,000 people uh, will die in heat or died in heat waves last summer, and they're expecting that and more uh, this year. And of course, all of this is down to uh, climate change. I suppose that's why we can, in some way, celebrate what we kicked off the program with uh, today: uh, the news that they restore nature. The proposal to restore nature in Europe that narrowly passed yesterday. Hopefully, going forward, uh, that might help. So, if you are gro- going abroad. 
please be extremely uh, careful. And if you are going abroad, we are bringing our mobile phones with us. It's a little bit of good news on mobile phones. If you are a Vodafone customer, we don't often hear of bills coming down, do we, of a late. And I have to say kudos and well done to Vodafone on this. And they are the they're certainly the first telecommunications uh, company. They have decided to scrap promotional and introductory offers for broadband uh, customers. And it's in a move, they say, that will save existing customers hundreds of euro every year. The customer says... It's breaking from what is now an interest, an industry norm by treating all of its customers the very same. Now, what happens, as we know, most broadband providers, they give big introductory discounts and that's to new uh, customers in order to get you to switch over. But when they give those introductory discounts, they don't give the same deals to existing customers. So Vodafone say the change, it could save its customers €240 a year on its 500 MPBS home broadband plan. Now, that's a very popular plan. Uh, Broadband say about 65% of their Irish customers are actually on that plan. Vodafone say the savings, if you stick with Vodafone over four years, will be about €1,000. At the moment, broadband customers, they get the introductory tariff, but then the price goes up hugely when the minimum contract is up. Now, this is the non-promotional price it can in some cases go up by 117% higher than what you would have got when you switched over first. Now, the telecoms regulator Comreg has found that 84% of householders haven't switched broadband provider in the past three years. So that means most of those householders are actually paying a higher price because their promotional offer would have end and then they go on the higher tariff and by not switching or at least getting back onto their provider and signing up to a new contract, they are certainly paying more. Vodafone says it now recognises that the current industry practice is not working for customers and in a move to what is very much going to be stealing a march on their competitors, Vodafone say it's moving all broadband installation and they're going to waiver them, remove the installation and also the setup uh, fees. Now the savings for Vodafone customers uh, will now be available across all of their speeds and they provided they give an example. Say an existing uh, customer, say you're paying uh, 60 euro a month, that's for that 50 or 500 MPB fibre home broadband plan. Uh, once you get to recontract uh, stage, that will go from 60 euro a month down to 40 euro a month. So you'll be saving 20 euro uh, every month. Now, they do say that the Vodafone bill say will increase by infl- inflation plus 3% in April. But we know, I think all of the telecommunication companies uh, are doing that. But existing customers can change to the Vodafone new plan once their minimum contract is uh, finished on their current plan. And the Vodafone move, it's been welcomed by the by the groups that we constantly talk with on the programme trying to encourage people to save money. The people like Owen Clark of the Price Comparison uh, site switcher.ie uh, Owen Clark says the telecommunications uh, company was rewarding loyalty and it's the one point that I always make when I interview the likes of Owen Clark or Dara Cassidy of uh, Bankers. Why don't they celebrate and reward loyalty? Well well done to Vodafone, that's exactly what they are going to do. Um, Owen Clark of Switcher says Vodafone has stepped outside the box 
to offer customers a different way to make savings on their broadband and and Derek Cassidy of Bonkers.ie said for once a customer seems to have the interest of its loyal and existing customers at its heart and he said the new pricing structure was also very competitive so uh, well done. Now watch this space, it's kind of a little bit like when the milk goes down in the supermarket and one of the major supermarkets will jump in and say we're reducing the price of milk, lo and behold within a few days all of the rest will follow suit. Will the other telecom giants follow suit? I think they will but for now Vodafone are certainly the first so well done we've we can cri- we criticize companies when they put up bills so let's recognize them particularly I think when they are trying to do their bit for uh, customers that are very loyal uh, to them but that's a shocking figure that 84% of householders haven't switched in the past uh, three years you need to look at switching folks 0818 103 103 uh, since we were talking about what's going on in uh, Europe and how um, the that bill was passed yesterday that new law passed helping us to restore nature we're trying to do our bit here on this programme with the feature we are running this year called Ours to Protect where we're trying to protect our own environment and of course we run this feature every uh, Friday at about 11.45 and tomorrow on our Hours to Protect we're going to hear about refill stores across Ireland with a focus on their impact on the circular economy and we'll be hearing more about that tomorrow on Hours to Protect. Okay let's take a break and let's get Jane Pickett our resident vet to join us on the programme. If you've got a question for Jane still time for you to contact us. You can call John Paul 0818 and you can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. And Jane Pickett of the Island Wood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group, uh, joining me. Good afternoon, Jane. Good afternoon, Patricia. Uh, and you're very welcome. A listener has wondered, uh, has Jane seen the newspaper report? Actually, I, I read about it yesterday online. It's making the papers today. This is about three 300,000 cats have died in Cyprus this year. It's an outbreak of feline coronavirus. Have you heard anything about mm. it? No, I hadn't actually. That's an interesting one. I'll have to have to look that up and have a little look. I suppose feline coronavirus is, I suppose some, it is a contagious disease essentially. Um, it is one that we tend to vaccinate against. Um, but no, I wasn't aware of the outbreak. Thank you okay. for bringing that to my attention. I'll have to have a look. Okay, I know the um, there's studies going on. The in um, the University of Edinburgh are looking at it uh, as well. But they but Cyprus mm-hmm. is is unusual in that they they they're known as and they have a lot of cats. They have a huge problem with feral cats they would i suppose they would be known to have a, a very large feral cat population and i suppose it's a little bit different i suppose we we do have a feral cat problem here in the, in this country certainly and things could be a lot better but that said a lot of our cats are owned and taken care for and thankfully vaccinated so i suppose the 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 capability for let's say a large scale infectious infectious issue like that is Although it's still possible, it's it's potentially less likely when there's not such a large feral cat population and, and more owned, thankfully. 
Okay, actually, Anne is on about a feral cat um, that they, they, she's able to feed but can't touch uh, her. But she's noticed she's got a lump on her tummy. Um, she's fearful that it might be a tumour. Now, she rang a local vet, um, but the vet said that, that unless she can get the cat into the vet, there's not a lot the vet can uh, do. What advice do you have? You've got to try and trap the cat, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I know I can empathise here. It must be a really distressing situation seeing a feral cat be unwell. Um, It's great that you've made the progress that you could feed it, but obviously picking it up and transporting it to the vets is is an entirely different matter entirely. And most feral cats just wouldn't be comfortable with being handled at that level. You know, I I would have to agree with your vet in this situation if if we were contacted with a similar query. Unfortunately, there's not a lot we can do in that situation to assess or help the situation until the pet can be bought into the practice and we completely understand that you know that's very challenging when it is a feral pet what i'd say is it probably would be worth contacting local cat charities or maybe even the ispca they would potentially be aware of facilities locally or cat charities locally that might have uh, cat traps most practices wouldn't hold them in house you know certainly we don't have we're not fortunate enough to have any but um Cat traps, if you can reliably feed the cat, may mean that you may be able to trap the cat in the cat trap enough to bring it into the vets. Um, but that is maybe something you need to loan from, from a charity if that was something they might be in a position to do. So have a chat with them. If you know of any local cat charities or maybe your vet might know of some that they would be able to put you in contact with. Or I suppose a good protocol is always the ISPCA, although they may not be able to help directly unless there's, let's say, uh, an issue of cruelty involved. Um, they may be able to direct you to, to local charities that might have a cat trap to be able to assist you. But I suppose as all always if the pet is in distress and they are feral and unwell you know they are a good port of call to, to point you in the right direction so best of luck and I suppose I empathise it's a really distressing, distressing thing to see when you see, see a pet be unwell um, even if they are just a little feral cat outside it would be lovely to be able to, to take care of them. And then what happens when you get it into the if, if, if a cat can't be handled is that very difficult for the vets when you do get it in? Mm. It is a real challenge but I suppose what okay. I would say is that when they're in the building we would have a number of, I suppose, it's our usual familiar environments. We have all of our tools and handling aids to hand. So a lot of the time, if we have an extremely feral cat for their own, I suppose, anxiety and safety and the safety of everybody involved with them, because obviously cats are quite powerful when they want to be. They have little little claw blades attached to them, so they can be can be quite quite dangerous if, if they're stressed. A lot of the time we would sedate them. Um, that means that they're a lot calmer for themselves, for their own good. They're not having big roil up of anxiety, but it's also much safer for those of us that are handling them. And hopefully that would be a situation in which, you know, the, the cat could be examined, decisions could be made as regards what course of treatment was needed or what was best for the cat in, in that situation. Okay. That said, I suppose examining an awake cat is always better than a, than a sleepy one. But in the, in the situation, you have to keep everyone safe. Okay, uh, your thoughts, please, on giving CBD oil to a small dog. We've got a Jack Russell, uh, an older dog, 16. He seems a bit unsteady on his feet. How would you feel about giving CBD oil to a dog? I think it's an interesting area of medicine that's developing at the moment. I suppose there seems to be some degree of pain relief property or pain easing property associated with CBD, but the level to which that exists in dogs and the level to which it, I suppose, it is, it is effective with the, the diseases that our older pets get, for example, osteoarthritis, is really, to my knowledge, yet to still be established. What I would say is that although it may be a useful adjunctive treatment and it would be best to discuss it with your own vet who knows your pet and also knows what other medications they might be on. 
as to whether it would be suitable for your pet because obviously if your pet's on other medications we don't want something to interact with that and cause issues so they would be best placed to assess that one but what i would say is if you're worried your pet is sore there are lots of proven effective methods of giving them pain relief and although they may be medications and some of us you know may be a little bit nervous about going down the medication drug route you know many of these things have been well tested in animals but also we know what side effects are possible and can, can watch for them or guard against them in some cases but also we know what dose is effective for them and we know what our expected response is. So I would say, although CBD oil may be something interesting to consider and might be a useful adjunctive treatment to discuss with your vet, it really would be priority to get your pet seen by the vet and discuss the, the stiffness or the soreness or the, the achiness that they're feeling so that they can fully assess it and see if pain relief treatment in, in a medicine form would be appropriate. But bring it up with your vet if that's something that they have experience with or you know that it wouldn't cause issues in your pet. It may be a case that it might be something that could be used in addition but that would need to need to be checked out for your individual pet Yeah I saw a very elderly dog that had arthritis and the poor dog was crippled with it and went on pain medication and was like a spring chicken was you know completely mm. took the pain away which is which is fantastic Okay uh, Susan in Fairhill has a one year old cat that's gone missing she's wondering will she be able to find her way home what does Jane think? Oh so I'm so sorry to hear he's gone missing it's always really stressful isn't it? Um, sometimes they can do I suppose it's the height of summer at the moment. A lot of younger cats are out hunting. Um, so they may have just gone hunting and gone a little bit further than normal. It may just be that he might pop back for you, which would be really brilliant. I think the things that you can do um, to, I suppose, help help with them coming back, or I suppose let everybody in the local area know that your cat's missing so that they can be watching out for him and let you know of any sightings. But also other things like putting their smell outside so that if they have strayed a little bit further away from home than normal, if they're getting close, they might smell their their own smell on the wind. So we'd normally recommend to put their blankets and their litter tray outside so that it can kind of be caught by the air to a degree and the smell can travel a little bit, which can sometimes help them if they're a little teeny bit lost, but within range of of, of those smells. Um, what I would say is that I suppose going forward, if your pet does come back, a handy thing to do would be to get them microchipped. Um, I know microchipping cats is not as common as with dogs, but it is still a really widely available thing and a really great thing to do so that if your cat turned up at a vet or with the guards that they could scan the scan the pet and their details would be logged on the chip to be able to get back to you but I think first and foremost just let everybody know locally that your cat's missing let them know what the cat looks like maybe circulate a picture and um, give them your contact details and hopefully fingers crossed he'll turn up Okay, and just back on feral cats, Paul and Dungarvan said, we rescued a feral cat from under a shed last weekend. A lot of coaxing got him out and we got him into a cage and into the vet. He was riddled with cat flu, but he's doing good now and is starting to trust us. So there is hope uh, that you can take on. Well done, Paula. Now, uh, hi, uh, this is Teresa. Hi, uh, Patricia and Jane. My eight-year-old Maltese slash Chihuahua cross has been diagnosed with Cushing's disease. We've decided not to go down the medication route at present due to the effect it might have on her kidneys and the many blood tests she would need to have. But she is excessively thirsty and she's peeing non-stop. Any advice, please, for us going forward? That's Teresa in the city. 
Mm, okay so that's an interesting one I think as our pets age they can become more prone to to lots of different conditions and many of those are hormonal and uh, Cushing's is a hormonal disease so what that is is it's an uh, essentially an excess amount of stress hormone cortisol now that doesn't mean that this pet is stressed it's not the situation it's just the body's reaction the body's ability to produce stress hormone is higher than normal and that has a really a plethora of effects on the body it can have a, a huge range of, of changes to how we manage fat uh, or thirst levels to how well our kidneys concentrate down urine so there are a huge range of effects and one of the things that we do see is excessive drinking and excessive peeing and that's one of the main things i would say with the pets that come into me with cushings that's one of the main signs that will cause them to be presented to the vet by their owners what I will say is I think it is worth a second discussion with your vet on this one. Now, it's 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 a little bit more challenging because I don't know the background details about what the, the issue with the kidneys is and what kind of bearing that would have on medication. But unfortunately, with the, let's say, if, if the peeing and the, the drinking is just associated with the Cushing's, then usually nothing will solve that except for medication for Cushing's. Um, but however, kidney problems can also cause different difficulties and I suppose excessive drinking and peeing. So Really, in this situation, it sounds a little bit more complex. I would have a second chat with your vet just to discuss, you know, the implications of Cushing's treatment and how that might serve to improve the signs. But also, I, I can hear that you have concerns about the kidneys in the background. So to explore that more with your vet, because a lot of the time, the medications that vets would advise would be really helpful in those situations. But the best person to advise you in this particular situation, given that there's more than one thing going on, would be your vet. So please don't be shy. I think I always worry when we have, you know, let's say older pets and they might have multiple um, medical issues. It can all get a bit complicated. Complicated. So please don't be shy about asking your vet to go through things again. A lot of the time, we're more than happy to discuss things again and make sure everybody's clear on the implications and, and how things work. Uh, because it can get really quite messy and, and difficult when they have a few things going on when they're a little bit older. But don't worry, your vet will be able to help you out. Well, someone else said, uh, we had a dog that was tired and peeing a lot. It was, it was my sister's dog. Uh, the dog ended up being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and has been injected mm-hmm. with insulin and is doing fine. OK, i got to leave it there, Jane. Listen, thank you for that. And thanks for joining us. We'll chat again next Thursday. Thank you very much. Thanks, Patricia. Jane. That's Jane Pickett, the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group. A couple of your final comments in. Somebody says, Patricia, be very careful about being so happy about the new environmental law that was passed in the EU yesterday, especially when global warming will hit food production. Europe will rewild and rewet Ireland land and, and Irish land included. Uh, we'll then end up having to import food all the way from New Zealand and South America. That's from Henry. And on A.D. Roach and her discussion about pushing for a war-free zone at the UN around the Zaporizhia plant, uh, this listener says it won't get past go, even if practically every other country agreed because Russia has the power of veto at the UN and would stop it in its tracks. That is why we must get rid of our triple lock. But then A.D. Roach will probably vote against that. She doesn't understand it all. So that's where I leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul. Nick Richards with the afternoon. Touch to my ten. C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.